Well, good evening. Good evening. Thank you. Um, it's great to have um, Brian up front. Finally, we've got a bit of Asian representation on the staff team. And uh, if you want a job and you're Asian, just come and talk to me because we need to fill the quotas. No, that's a joke. But um, it's great. I love the way Brian just prays so simply. Uh, but so deeply. Um, Kind of on staffing, as you know, uh, Steph's pregnant and uh, she's having a baby soon, uh, hopefully in a month's time. On that, we've had three new babies get born to families in the church over the last month. I just met Edison up the back to Scott and Julie. Jennifer and Ming Lee had a baby. The name has slipped my mind. Does anyone know? Cadence. Cadence and... um, and then uh, Zach and Catherine had a baby just on Friday, Ava. So is it Hope? Where did I see Ava? That's a middle name, okay. So Hope, Hope's, uh, thank you over here. They know what's happening, okay. So um, just on that though, so Steph's, uh, she'll be going on maternity leave at the end of June, start of July, and we're about to uh, put out some advertising for this maternity leave position, uh, working with women in our church to encourage and mature them in the gospel. We've also got a couple of other jobs which we're uh, thinking about um, advertising this week, one in uh, children's ministry. Um, I think that's it. I, there's just so much going on. So I appreciate prayer for those things, the right people to apply, the right people to uh, fit into those positions. Um, I think that's all I've got for you. Let me pray, and then let's jump into this part of God's Word. Heavenly Father, we're listening with our ears, so please come and speak to us now by the power of your Word, through the power of your Spirit, as he applies your Word to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me just see if this is going to work. Here we go. Okay, cool. Well, um, I don't know about you, but I find it really hard to tell people about Jesus. And uh, it's made worse because my job kind of demands me being good at this. Uh, but I, I, I literally get terrified talking to people about Jesus. And it's really difficult because, you know, whenever you're out in public meeting new people, you know, you can, you can kind of you can hide and duck for cover pretty easily. But for me, it's much, much harder. Uh, so this week I was at TEDx and um, I was meeting a whole bunch of people and I was there with Justin Noon and Justin just has a habit of introducing me as his pastor. I'm like, don't tell them that, Justin, because you can see the people right away as soon as, as, soon as he introduces me as that. And uh, it's really quite difficult. I find it very difficult. I don't know about you. I find it very difficult talking to people about Jesus. And I think one of the reasons for this is, and you've got to understand Western philosophy to understand this, but one of the reasons for this is because we've been profoundly affected by Immanuel Kant in, in kind of the West, and he divided the world into two, into two realms, the realm of the phenomenal, which is what you can see, taste, and touch, and then also the realm of the noumenal, the realm that you cannot see, taste, and touch. You might call the realm of the phenomenal the secular, uh, the realm of the noumenal the sacred, or the public and the private, and you can see the difference there. And so the phenomenal realm is a world of facts, evidence, and data, what you can see and touch. It's, we discuss things like one plus one equals two, water boils at 100 degrees Celsius, and the sky is blue. You can't argue with that. But when you come to the noumenal, the world of values, ethics, and religion, this is the world where you say surfing is better than bodyboarding. Right? Or that summer is better than winter, like it is. Like, you can't argue against me on that. But, you know, it's, it's kind of, some of you are like going, no, Anna's shaking her head at me. She's looking forward to going to the Blue Mountains and enjoying the freezing cold. But I'm not. I hate winter. Bring back summer, I say. And so that's the numeral. The, the numeral is about, uh, should, uh, is there a God? Or isn't there a God? It's what you cannot see, taste, and touch. And now the difference between these two realms is, Manuel Kant said both exist. It's not as though one exists and the other is just all in your head. The, the other exists, but the problem is that you can't verify it. 
Down the bottom, you can verify whether water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. You can verify whether 1 plus 1 equals 2. You can verify if the sky is blue. But does God exist? How, could, how are you going to prove that to anyone? Surfing is better than bodyboarding. How are you going to verify that to anything? And so that's the difference. Now, where does God fit? Well, obviously, he fits above the line, above the divide. He fits in the realm of the noumenal. He isn't saying that God doesn't exist, but simply that it's impossible to verify whether God exists or not. How do you verify these kinds of things? And so he, he, he divides the world into these two different halves. There is a God, there isn't a God, who, you know, who can tell? It's inaccessible. And so ever since Immanuel Kant, 16th century, that's the world we live in. It's the world of the public. And in public, we can discuss things such as data, uh, facts, and evidence. That's what we discuss in public, and that's all we're happy to discuss. Uh, and in private, you can discuss your values, your beliefs, your worldviews, your ethical systems, but really, you shouldn't bring those, those things into the public square because I can't test and verify them. Do you see the difference? So that's why we find it so difficult to talk about Jesus in our world. Because as soon as you start talking about Jesus, we're in the pub, a public space and people start getting all awkward because immediately we're saying, no, I'm going to talk about something which is private and I'm bringing that into this public space here. And, and people find, I don't just find it awkward, they find it awkward. And I think that's why it's very difficult to talk about Jesus in our world. If I said to you, we're all going to go down to Shannon Reserve this, this evening, opposite Messina, you know, that park there, and we're all going to stand in a big circle, hold hands and pray in a loud voice to Jesus. And we're going to mention Jesus a lot. Most of us would be like, I don't want to be a part of that. <laughs> uh, that would be awkward, right? And that's because we're invading the public space with something which is private. And that's why we find it hard. Now, this is purely a Western experience. Because if you go into the Eastern world, they don't have a problem. They don't have this divide going on. So if you go into an Asian grocer, even in our city, You'll walk down one aisle and there'll be, there'll be an idol on the ground with an offering to that idol, right? You jump in a taxi with a, a Westerner and start talking to him about God. He's like, dude, you're invading my private space here. Don't talk to me about this. But you jump into an Uber with a Muslim guy and you ask him about God. He's all right. That's okay. There is no sacred, secular Divide, And that's the reason I think we find it so difficult talking about Jesus in our world. Now, why is it that the church in Philadelphia found it difficult to talk about Jesus in their world? It wasn't because they had this sacred, secular, numinal, phenomenal divide. Jesus sends this letter, this whole book, the, the letter of Reve the revelation that he appears to his apostle John and John writes down what he sees, and part of what he sees is he hears these seven letters sent to the churches in Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey. And Jesus writes this letter at the beginning of a major persecution of Christians in that world. And that's why they found it very difficult to talk about Jesus in their world. We know that by the time of Emperor Trajan, around about AD 98 to AD 117, that was the time of his reign, it became illegal to become a Christian, to be a Christian. And if you were found to be a Christian, you were hauled before the Roman proconsul, the governor, and uh, you were told to curse Christ. And if you didn't, you'd be tortured and executed. And as a result, you could imagine being a Christian in that kind of world. And so Jesus writes to the church. He writes seven letters in this whole book, which is a vision of who really is sitting on the throne of God. It's not the powers that be, the powers of Rome. It's Jesus Christ. He's sitting on the throne, despite what it looks like out there. And, uh, and you, they get this letter and it changes them. And the Church of Philadelphia, that's them. They're, they're a church um, in the middle of Turkey, uh, situated by a great mountain in a very fertile valley, which was very volcanic. They'd been... Uh, 
demolished by an earthquake in AD 17, but rebuilt. And this is somewhere around about 80 to 90 AD that this letter is written. And what's interesting is that in the other letters, Jesus pretty much comes to smack down them. They've got something wrong going on in the other seven churches, but not Philadelphia and not Smyrna, which we saw a couple of weeks ago. Jesus comes to the small little church in Philadelphia. He says, guys, hang on. You're doing the right thing. Keep hanging on. Keep holding to my name and keep telling people about me. That's what he says. They're a very small church, Philadelphia, small and weak. The opposite of the church last week, if you remember Joel sharing about Sardis. Sardis are the hill song of the ancient world, very powerful, very large, very... And yet Jesus writes to them and says, you guys, you think you've got something going on there, but you don't. You think you're alive, but you're actually dead. To little Philadelphia who think they're dead, Jesus writes, and he has no word of blame for them. That's, that, size, isn't a size, size isn't a sign of life necessarily. And so this church is in danger of thinking, you know what, we're a small boat in a big sea, the big sea of the Roman Empire, very hostile to Christianity. It's just bumping into us. And you know what? We should just stay quiet. Let's stay quiet. Let's, let's just keep it to ourselves. And it can be very easy to be that way in Sydney, Carnot, where increasingly become, becoming a nation which is hostile to the things of God. And it can be very difficult when you're out with your workmates to say, yeah, I'm a Christian. We just, it's very difficult, isn't it? And that's this little church as well. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time is, firstly, I want to talk about how this letter, how did this letter give this church inexplicable boldness? Uh, and then secondly, where do I start in being bold? How, like, Toby, I'd love to be bold, but what do I, what do, I do? How do I start? Where do I start telling people, my, friend, my friends, about Jesus? So firstly, how does this letter give this church inexplicable boldness? Because the fact of history is, it did. The church stood firm in the midst of this hostile, oppressive persecution that, la- that landed upon them. They kept telling people about Jesus and Christianity grew from 12 guys in an upper room with a handful of their lady friends in the room with them to the largest religion in the, in the ancient world, 30 million Christians by 300 AD. And so this letter made a difference. What is it in this letter that gave them such ex- inexplicable boldness? So come and have a look. Verse 7, you see it there? Jesus starts by reminding them who he is, because unless we have a big picture of him, the other big things in our lives will crowd him out. And so he says, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Jesus has opened a door to something And no one can close this door because he has the keys of David. And this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 22. Chase it down when you get home. It's a reference to a man God appointed called Eliakim, who is the steward, and he held the keys of David, the great king of Israel. David is just another name for the king of Israel. And he had the keys to let people into the presence of the palace of, of the king. That's his job. And here Jesus is reminding us that he is the steward par excellence who has the keys not to an earthly palace, but the keys to heaven itself to let people into that place to the presence of God. I've never been to Buckingham Palace. Has anyone here been to Buckingham Palace? I'd love to go to Buckingham Palace. I'd love to walk through the rooms and see all the furniture. I was told this week that there's a table in there which was Napoleon's and on it is a painting of all his generals. I'd love to go in that palace and just see the splendor and opulence that belongs to the Queen of England. But, you know, that is nothing compared to the splendor and glory 
that will be when we walk into the home of the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, the King Eternal in heaven. You know, when, when the book of Revelation tries to describe it, it just grasps for images. The throne room was like a sea of glass. You know, there were peals of thunder. He just, just can't explain how glorious it looked. And so he just grasped for all these metaphors. That's, we're reminded, that Jesus is the steward with the keys to let us into that. Not just so we can visit, but so that we can make our home there. That's what I'm looking forward to. The doorway to God's presence is open because the Lord Jesus Christ has opened it. And the key he has opened it with is, of course, the cross upon which he died. He died with no sin of his own. He died with our sin on his shoulders so that you and I, the way could be made so that we could approach the throne of God with confidence knowing that our sins won't go with us, and so God condemn us. Our sins have been paid for on Jesus. We've been washed clean so that we can draw near to the throne of God with confidence. The key is the cross. The doorway is salvation. And the place this doorway is leading to is the abode of God, the home of God. Have you entered that door? The Lord Jesus invites you today, come to me and I will give you rest. It's one day, this door, currently this door, no one can close it, but one day the Lord Jesus will close this door. And if you haven't stepped through it before that day, you will never have a chance to cross through it again. And so come now, the Lord Jesus says, tell me your sin and I'll wash you. Enter in, and you'll find all the desires of your heart satisfied. You know, you can be a regular churchgoer, you can have heard the gospel many times, and yet you can remain outside. Come in, the Lord Jesus Christ says to us. And then he says, verse 8, you know what, I know what you're going through. I know you have little strength, the middle of verse 8, yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. So just as we go through this, just listen to the things which would have encouraged this church to keep telling their friends about Jesus. Jesus is saying, I know how hard it's been living in the place that you live, that you've continued to witness for me even when there's opposition. You know, Jesus isn't waiting for you to do some marvelous, miraculous kind of ministry. He's not waiting for you to turn water into wine in your workplace. All he's wanting from you is that you just name Christ when the opportunity comes up. That you'd have an opportunity to do good to those in the place where you work. And to have an opportunity to pray for them when that opportunity arises. You don't have to have much strength. In fact, the one precondition upon walking through this door is that you'd admit you have no strength and that you need a strong saviour to bring you to God. So hold on, Jesus says. Keep hold of my word, verse 9. And if you do, I'll make those who've mocked you, because that happens, doesn't it? I'll make those who've mocked you, who are a synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews and they are not, but are liars. In other words, it's, you will be mocked as you tell people about Jesus in our world. And there will be people who say, you know what, Jesus doesn't love you because, I mean, look at the things he allows you to go through in your life. I mean, explain that to me, Toby. This is in your life and you say God loves you? And Jesus, what does he say? I'll make those who, are, who claim to be Jews and yet are not, I'll make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. I've loved you on the cross and I've loved you every day since then and I've been with you even through difficult times and I'll love you to the end when I bring you into the presence of my Father and I will love you forever and ever and ever and I'll make them acknowledge that. There will be a day when they will all bow down and say, wow, this was real. He loved you. And verse 10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world. 
He's speaking of Judgment Day, which is part of the gospel. Elsewhere, Jesus describes the experience of living forever without God's kindness. Jesus describes the experience of living without God's kindness as being so terrible, it's like being burned alive. Jesus isn't saying that God is kind of like, you know, he's got a torture chamber as though he kind of creates concentration camps in hell forever just to torture people. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that for you to enter into eternity without your sins forgiven, it's going to feel like you'll be burnt on fire. That's how painful that experience will be, coming before a holy God as his enemy unwilling to part with your sins. You know, you cannot expect to enter his palace if you refuse to leave your sin at the door and have the Lord Jesus wash your heart. I mean, if I was walking into the presence of Queen Elizabeth, who's just a human being, I'd probably have to put a suit on, right? I'd wash my hands. I'd, I don't know whether I'd shave, right? But <laughs> I'd put on some beard oil. I'd make myself presentable. But you think you could really come into the presence of God with greed and, and, uh, and a bit of idolatry that you're, you're, you're living for other things apart from him and you're worshipping, you're giving your life, you're trusting in other things. Other, you think you can draw near to his presence with those things in your life? He won't allow it. And he won't allow it also because you'll just ruin that place for the rest of us. I mean, if you think you can smuggle a little bit of your selfishness into heaven, he won't let you do that. He will exclude you from his presence, rightly so. He'll exclude you from his kindness. Otherwise, you'll ruin it for the rest of us. Come to him now and have him change you, forgive you, so that you'll be prepared to enter his presence then. You know, uh, one of the things, if you're a parent, you know, this is the way to explain the gospel to your kids. I find explaining the gospel to my kids most effective when I start with the end and work backwards. So I say to my kids, I say, Maisie, what are we waiting for? And Maisie says, we're waiting for Jesus to come back, Dad, and take us to his house for a party. I say, is it going to be good? She says, it's going to be amazing. I'm like, why would he want us to come there? I mean, I've got sin in my heart. You've got sin in your heart. Surely he won't let us into that place. We'll ruin it for people. He said, yeah, Dad, that's why Jesus died so that our sins would be washed and that's why he sends the Holy Spirit into our lives so that he would change us from the inside. I say, that sounds pretty good, but I don't know how to get there. I mean, if I jump in my car right now, I don't know which way to get there. And he's like, yeah, Dad, that's why Jesus, you need to hang on to Jesus because he will take you there. You don't need to know the way. Hold on to Jesus and he'll take you there. And at that point, she's understood the gospel. Parents, that's the way to explain the gospel. I think that's, for me, that's the easiest way I find in sharing the gospel with them. And teach them, verse 11, to hold on to what they have so that no one will take their crown. Talk about the promise of life after this life as though it's the most important thing, for it is. Help them long for it and help them to cling to Christ. Hang on, in verse 12, I'll make you a pillar if you do in the temple of my God, says the Lord Jesus Christ. And at that point you might say, Toby, I'm not sure I want to be a pillar That sounds very large. I'm trying to lose weight, not gain weight. (laughs) It sounds very stationary. I'd much prefer to kind of be free and float around and go in and out. You know, I don't want to be a pillar. That sounds quite boring, cold, and hard. But the point here is that the pillar, where is it? It's right in the heart of the temple. This is the way Jesus, he's pretty much saying, you know what? If you hold on to him, you'll have front row seats when the party in heaven starts. You'll be right amongst it. You know, last year I went, uh, last year Jess and Jordan Troster, they gave me tickets to a Waratahs game. And um, we went and after the game, uh, we got taken into the SCG, into the members stand to meet the players and with all the family and friends. And so I'm in there and I'm sitting there and I walk down into the members. I've never been in the members stand at the Sydney Cricket Ground. And I sat down in a seat. I thought, wow, wouldn't, wouldn't this be amazing to watch the cricket 
from here. I didn't really care about the Waratahs players. I'm not much of a rugby fan, but the stand, I was impressed by the stand. All right? And you know, that's kind of what Jesus is saying. The most amazing, remarkable privilege that you could ever have is to be a pillar right in the heart of the temple, the presence of God. You know, not needing anyone else to kind of tell you what's happening there. Not relying on secondhand accounts. You're there. You're right in the heart. Never again, verse 12, will you leave it. And we'll have new names. I'll write on them the name of my God, the name of my city of my God, the name of Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God. And I'll write on them a new name. And last week, uh, I was at uh, TEDx at the Opera House. And because I was there with Justin, Justin's firm was a partner with TEDx. So when I rocked up, I didn't just get a red lanyard, I got a black lanyard, right? Woohoo! And the black lanyard, man, I was kind of with the partners. And when I walked into the Opera House Auditorium, there were seats, you know, reserved for partners like myself. And at lunchtime, I got to go into the partners' lunch. And I could come and go as I please. I had a name which entitled me to things. And Jesus is saying that when you, if you hold on to Jesus, when you die and rise and be part of the new heavens and earth, which the Lord Jesus will create, you will have a name. Your name, you'll have the name of heaven stamped upon you, which means you belong. No one can exclude you from it, be, you'll be able to enjoy the goodness of God. Don't you long for that day? I long for it when I'm singing with all of you and 10 billion others, singing to the glory of our great God, face to face with Jesus Christ who bled and died to win me from Satan and bring me into his kingdom. I long for that day, enjoying the goodness and kindness and blessing of God. Be bold, Jesus says. Hold on, and you will get there. And Jesus will give you the crown of life, and you'll have a place at the heart of the presence and home of God in the palace of God forevermore. Now imagine you're there. You're sitting in this tiny little church in the Roman Empire in a city called Philadelphia. Just a couple of you, there are no other churches there. And you feel very weak, very small, very tempted just to stay silent about Jesus. And along comes Jesus, he addresses a letter to our church. And he says, you know what, there's a door open. People are going to be streaming through this door. Don't stay quiet. Keep talking, even if it costs you your life. And if you hold on... You'll come in and you'll be there with me for an eternity in the home of God. Don't you think that would have given them boldness to keep going, keep talking about Jesus to their friends in that place? This letter, it should give us boldness. God has a door open. The people in your life that you most think, there's no way they could walk through this door. You're doubting the power of of Jesus at that point. Repent. The door is open. What is the key to getting people into the kingdom of God? It's not your eloquence. It's not how good you are at talking about Jesus. The key is held on to by the Lord Jesus Christ. He holds the key. He can change their hearts. Imagine you would be filled with boldness after hearing this letter. And we ought to be as well. Now, some of you at this point, you say, Toby, well, that's very well and good. This church, and I've got boldness, but where do I start? I mean, I want to tell people about Jesus, but I just don't know how to get started. And so the second half of this talk, I'm going to try and give you a couple of tips, which Sam Chan, who's an Australian, uh, very effective uh, teacher in Australia who shares the gospel with people in our city. He works for City Bible Forum. Anyone part of the City Bible Forum network goes along to their public meetings? A couple of people, Nick and Joel and Elaine and Felix, go and talk to them afterwards. They run public meetings in the city at lunchtime. They run a breakfast, Bridge Street Fellowship, right, Nick, on... Alternate weeks for people in the finance industry public meetings 
at lunchtime are open to anyone. You don't have to be a finance geek, right? But um, so go along to that. Anyway, Sam Chan works for them and gives a whole bunch of talks. And last year he came to our church and he did some training with us and he, and he gave us five tips, five ways to start talking about Jesus. Who was there at that training session? Was it good? Doesn't sound like it was good. Yes, it was good. Okay, it was very good. Now, what I want to do is I've got nothing original to say for the rest of the time. I'm just going to tell you, remind you of the tips he gave us. And as I was preparing this message, you know, I, I relearned stuff. And I'm like, I've got to do that. So here are his five tips, where to start, how to start talking about Jesus. And his first tip is this. First thing you've got to do, is to get your friends to become their friends. Imagine you suddenly change your view about what is healthy for you to eat. Right? Uh, you grew up in a home where you know, eating Sultana brand, that was the healthy option for breakfast in the morning. And you know, right now you're like, oh, cereal, that's bad for you. These days, bacon and eggs, nothing better for you, right? Paleo diet, let's do this, right? And you come into a room and you start trying to tell other people about this new diet, that cereals, you know, the thing on the bottom of the food pyramid, you know, that's actually really bad for you. Don't listen to the CSIRO. Listen to me. I'm telling you something bad. Bacon and eggs, good. You should start eating bacon and eggs. And imagine you came into a world and, and everyone said, that's absolutely ridiculous, Right? You'd just feel like a fool. It'd be very hard to convince them. Now, imagine, though, came into a room, same message, and you say, you know what? I've changed diet. No longer cereals, breads, heavy carbohydrates. These days I'm eating bacon and eggs for breakfast, and I've lost heaps of weight. I'm way fitter, healthier, stronger. Uh, I don't care about cholesterol. I'm really, really good, right? And, uh, And, you know, one person pipes up and says, that's ridiculous. That is such... You know, that's ridiculous, right? And, you know, but then a couple of others in the room say, no, actually, I've read the studies about this. I think there's something to this. And the next person says, I went on paleo diet and I lost five kilograms. Another person said, yeah, I went on the Pete Evans. I just bought his cookbook and I followed that. I've lost 10 kilos. It's amazing. Now, imagine that experience compared to the first experience. You haven't given them... Any more evidence, facts, or data? You haven't given them any scientific studies. But imagine you're a doubter in the second instance. At that point, when a couple of other people start saying, you know what, I believe this as well, immediately the believability factor of the paleo story rises, doesn't it? In the first situation where no one agrees with me, the believability factor is very low. But as soon as I'm a part of a group where there are some other people who agree with me, whether I'm right or wrong about paleo, the believability factor for the others in the group goes up. Does that make sense? Now, as you think about it, uh, and as people have looked at this, there are three main sources which affect the believability of any story that you hear. I should have written them up, but I haven't. The first thing is the community you belong to. The second thing is your own personal experience. And the third thing are facts, evidence, and data. Community that you belong to, the experiences you've had, and facts, evidence, and data. Now, when it comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of us, if you're a Christian, all of us agree the facts, evidence, and data should convince people. I mean, the evidence for the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ is just so persuasive. We are in a city, just look at the facts, and no one believes. Why is that? The reason that is, is because it's like going into a group of people who don't believe in paleo, who are all eating Sultana Bram for breakfast, and trying to tell them that they should switch to bacon and eggs, which they've been told since they were a kid in PDHPE that'll lead to heart disease. Right? And so right now, uh, what, uh, whether, a good thi- whether this is a good thing or not, it's... The community that you belong to, which has the most profound impact on the believability of the things that we believe in. I'll show you. Uh, Who here believes that women should have the right to vote? 
You weren't quick enough in raising your hands then, right? I'm hoping we all do agree with that, right? Now, go back 100 years, and if we were in this school auditorium, which didn't exist, imagine we're in the Gothic school building over there, and we're running church there, and I did that quiz, no one would have raised their hands. 100 years ago, people didn't believe that women had the right to vote. What's the difference? Well, the communities that we inhabit have changed. And we're profoundly impacted, uh, not just by facts, evidence, and data, but by the communities in which we inhabit. Don't believe that. Who here believes that gun control is a good thing, that people shouldn't own personal firearms? Okay, very good. A couple of the Americans, I saw them like this. (laughs) Will, I'm looking at you. right? But that's the thing. Go to a church in America this very day, and you ask that question, and no one will raise their hands. Right? They're just as enlightened, just as intelligent as us. Now, what's going on there? It's the community that we inhabit profoundly affects what we believe. Now, that doesn't mean well, whatever the community believes that's true. That's not true. I mean, that's why there are so many wacky people in our world who believe random crazy things. It's because they're part of crazy communities where they feed off one another's lunacy in the things they believe. But it doesn't matter, community is a profound, has a profound impact on the believability of the things that we talk about. So, if you want to start talking about Jesus, and you want people to consider the facts, data, and evidence for Jesus Christ, don't do it as a solo sport. Don't join a soccer team by yourself and hope to share the gospel with people in that team by yourself. They'll just think... You're like the crazy guy who's eating bacon and eggs and is going to die in five years of heart disease. Right? That's what they will think. Join a soccer team with a couple other Christians. Don't just form your own Christian soccer team. Merge your universes. Uh, and so here's typically we have, uh, typically we live within two kind of worlds, two universes. We have our Christian friends and our non-Christian friends. And so when our Christian friends invite us to go to Vivid, we go along with them to Vivid. When our non-Christian friends invite us to Sydney Festival, we go along to Sydney Festival. But we need to merge. Here we go. Do you like this? Whoa, okay. That took me forever. Let's just go back, okay? See this? Whoa. Do you even like the color change? Yes. Okay, thank you very much. Okay. Okay, this is what we've got to do. We've got to merge our universes so that when our non-Christian friends say, hey, we're going to Sydney Festival, you want to come? We say, yeah, can I bring some other my friends? They say, yeah, sure. And, and slowly our universes start to... When our Christian friends are going to Vivid, we say, can I bring some of my non-Christian friends, my work friends? And so the universes merge. My brother was great at this. At university, he, he was studying law. And when the, whenever his non-Christian friends were doing anything, he'd drag along his friend Mike Winram, who was also doing law. And sometimes, if I was lucky enough, he'd drag along his younger brother, right? And at that point, he wasn't just the only fool who believed in Jesus in the room. There were three of us fools now, and it increased the believability factor. And whenever he's hanging out with his Christian friends, he'd invite his non-Christian friends to join his Christian friends in whatever they were doing. And over time, one of his friends, Ben Adamo, started coming to church. He put his trust in Jesus, started to follow Jesus. And in fact, I went to Bible college with Ben Adamo eight years, and he's a pastor in Sydney right now. That's what we're trying to do. That's the first tip. You want to know where to start? Get your friends to become their friends. Merge your universes. The second thing, the second tip Sam Chan gave us is that we need to follow the sequence coffee, coffee, dinner, Jesus. And the reason we've got to follow that sequence is because of this. You know, why is it? Uh, Remember, phenomenal are things like 1 plus 1 equals 2, water boils 100 degrees, sky is blue, the numeral realm is the world of values, ethics, and God, which we cannot talk about in a public situation. We're always taught that at dinner parties, you're not allowed to mention politics and religion, and that's because dinner parties, if you've been invited to one, it's a public space. Don't bring your private 
beliefs into that public space. And so when you're out at a pub with your friends, it's very difficult to talk in that public space about what people consider to be private things. And so the first thing to do is to invite people uh, to coffee. It's not as easy as it sounds. It takes a bit of effort, but you say, let's go for coffee. Let's go grab a beer. And the beauty with coffee is that, you know, it takes about five minutes to drink a cup of coffee, right? And so it's a very short period of time that you're asking a person you've just met, someone you're trying to start a friendship with, very short period of time you're asking them to commit to. It's a public space. They know there's nothing going to be awkward said in that public space. And so as a result, you just talk about things like, hey, you know one plus one equals two? Hey, that sky is really blue today. How about the weather? Gee, it's cold. You know, or gee, how, how about those swannies? You know, go the swannies. You know, that's what you talk about at coffee. You know, over time, what happens is, well, maybe they're comfortable coming over for dinner. And so you invite them over to dinner. And now that's in your home. And you're crossing over from the, from the public space into a private space when you're doing dinner together, aren't you? And so immediately, even just the context, you're setting it up to talk about bigger things than just facts, evidence, and data. You're, you're entitled now to talk about values and worldviews and ethics. And so you do dinner and slowly you move into this private space and you start talking about belief systems. Finally, you get to Jesus. Follow that process. You know, the problem with me is that because I'm a pastor, I jump from phenomenal to noumenal. I jump from coffee to Jesus straight away, right? And it's very, very difficult. They ask me, you know, what's your name? I'm Toby. What's your name? I'm Jane. I say, uh, she says, um, what do you do for a living? I say, I don't want to go into the noumenal space right now. You know, I just want to run away. I don't want to tell her what I do, right? And that's because I'm jumping too quickly. I'm going from coffee to the bedroom. You know, there needs to be some foreplay at this point. Is that too? I didn't do that at morning church. I'm like, this group will appreciate this. Morning church, I don't know. They probably would. Anyway, so... So you're actually moving from interests to value, talking about values to then talking about worldviews. That's the second tip he gives. Third step, he says, well, the next step is you've got to listen to their story. And, uh, you know, just on Wednesday, Justin introduces me to this girl. And I'm like, Justin, don't introduce... Um, he hasn't heard me. I actually haven't told him, don't introduce me as his pastor. Right? He knows loud and clear today that he's not going to do that again. But I don't know whether it's a good thing, but... Uh, but anyway, I meet this girl. I can't remember her name. And uh, you know, she goes, what do you do? I say, I'm a pastor. And I'm like, oh. But I've, I've, I've learned at that point that I need to do, the thing I need to do is I need to give her permission to stay in the awkward space we've just jumped into. Right? And, so, and the way I've learned to do this, I was talking to Joel last night about this as well. I've got to come back at her with a question. Which, which shows her, actually, I'm, a, I'm comfortable in this space. And so I ask her, do you have a faith? Are you religious? And you know what she said? She said to me, yeah, I used to work for a uniting church. And then I just got jack of all that religion stuff, and so now I work for a not-for-profit. And at that point, you know, I should have started asking her questions about that, but the, the whole up, the rest of the table were watching on, listening on, and I'm just like, I hate the noumenal space. So I jumped back into the phenomenal. I said, oh, what job do you do now? But I should have stuck there, and I should have asked her questions like, well, what was that like? What made it difficult being in the Uniting Church? How was that experience? Did you grow up as a Christian? Were your parents a Christian? How, you know... Are you a Christian now? What do you believe about God now? Do you have children? What do you hope they believe in when they grow up? I should have extended that question, but I chickened out. And so that's what you need. You need to listen to their story. Ask them questions. Find out what makes them tick. No one is really that interested in people in our city. We have these casual conversations. If you can show interest in someone you will become one of their best friends in life because we just don't listen in our city. So listen. Think about you know, what makes this person, what drives 
this person and ask a bunch of questions. Ask them, do they pray? How do they worship? What do they value? What brings meaning to their life? If they're an atheist, ask them, did you grow up in an atheist family? Is that why you're an atheist? Did you have to make a decision at 16 whether to keep believing in atheism or not? You know, what, what do you find difficult to believe about God? They're the kind of questions to ask. Listen to their story. Then the fourth step, fourth step is learn to share your story. So when, they, when you say to them, do you have a faith, they'll start talking, right? You ask them questions. The longer they talk, the longer they'll let you talk when it comes to your chance. If, if they talk for a minute, you get a minute. They talk for 10 minutes, you get 10 minutes to share what you believe in. They talk for an hour, you get an hour as well. And so uh, at this point, at this stage, probably better than just telling them a whole bunch of facts about what you believe, it's better to tell them the story about how you came to believe the things you believe in. So tell it as a story. And you need to, I love the way Sam Chan puts this, you know, most of us, our testimonies go like this. I grew up in a Christian home. Not that that makes us a Christian or anything, but when I turned 16, I had to work out for myself whether I'm going to believe in this kind of thing. That's just a boring story. Everyone has that story. But there is a story in that which is very interesting. There's something that drives you. There have been make or break moments in your life that have led you to think, you know, am I going to stick with this or am I going to jump out of this? So you've got to learn to tell your story as a story. Now, what does a story look like? Look at this, hey? I'll just do that one again for you. Like. <laughs> yeah, this is what a story looks like. Intro, crisis, body, bridge, new month. So imagine, I don't know, imagine a, um, a Hollywood movie, really unattractive guy goes off to college hoping to find the girl of his dreams, but he's very unattractive. So he hits a crisis. I'm ugly. No one's going to want to date me. I've gone to college hoping no one's going to want to date me. He meets a friend, and this friend teaches him how to shave well, get a nice haircut, wear the nice clothes, and suddenly he becomes a really hot guy, and all the ladies start to flock to him. That's the body. But there becomes a moment where you hit the bridge in his life where he's faced with the decision. Will he date the hot bimbo or will he date the less attractive but much more substantial, uh, you know, substantial, (laughs) that's terrible. (laughs) Much more, the, the girl with character, right? You know, which girl does he choose? And, you know, of course he chooses a girl with character. They sail off into the you know, into the blue yonder and they live happily ever after. Every story goes through that kind of pattern. And you've got to work out what is your story. All right, and so here are the questions to ask. Who am I? What are my dreams and ambitions? Second question, how, how has pursuing this without Jesus factored in left you feeling? Thirdly, how has trusting Jesus changed your life And fourthly, when did you face a make-or-break decision to follow Jesus? How are we going for time? I don't have much more time. So I was going to tell you my story, but I'll just run through a grid on this. You know, one grid, who am I? Sam Chan talks about he's a high-achieving Asian. He used to get 99 on his exams and used to wonder where his 1% went to. So he's a high achiever. That's who he was. How did, that, how did pursuing this without Jesus leave him feeling? He was always insecure, craving people's acceptance that he would never be good enough for others. That's how that left him feeling. Uh, how did trusting Jesus change his life? He realized that Jesus Christ was good so that he doesn't have to. That Jesus Christ got his to-do list done so that he doesn't have to. That Jesus Christ passed the test at 100% so he doesn't have to. And that in Jesus Christ he is fully accepted how well he performs or not. That's how trusting Jesus changed his life. And then finally he talks about when did he face a make or break decision to follow Jesus and he explains that. In my paradigm is who am I? I grew up as a, in a family, loved to do adventurous sports, hiking, surfing, things like that. I wanted to be free. How did pursuing this without Jesus leave me feeling empty? 
in year 10, I wanted to become a park ranger, not because I liked flora and fauna, but because I wanted to surf all day. Hit uni and realised, I can't afford a house at the beach as a park ranger. So I went into finance to try and pay for that. But that was just this never-ending treadmill. It left me feeling empty, insecure. How did trusting Jesus change my life? True freedom is, is finding out how God has designed me to be and living according to that. It's not just choosing to do whatever I want to do. And then make or break decision, I could share that with you as well. You've got to go home and work out who are you, what drives you, and how does the things that drive you in your life, how have they led you to bad places? How have they led you into sin? How does Jesus offer what the world couldn't offer? And then finally, when did you face a make or break decision in your life to follow Jesus? Go home and write that out. Bring it to community group this week. And can I ask you to share that this week? Share that in your community groups this week. Okay, so that's the fourth thing. Learn to tell your story as a story. And fifthly, and very quickly, share a story from the Bible. I would pick the prodigal sons, Luke 15, and tell the story about how I'm both sons. I grew up in a religious family, we're like the Flanders, and I thought I was better than everyone else because I knew Adam's third son's name, whoop-de-doo, right? And, um, but I was also like the younger brother. I ran away seeking and chasing my freedom elsewhere. That's the story I'd tell. Tell it in your own words. And after you tell it, just ask some simple questions. What do you think of that story? What do you think Jesus is trying to tell us about God there? What do you think he's saying about human beings? And if they say something stupid, don't say that's stupid. Say, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and, and you're building trust, okay? So that's the fifth thing. Share a story from the Bible. That brings me to the end of this talk. Why are we doing this? You know, well, let me just rehearse them. One, make our friends become their friends. Uh, because the believability factor increases when we're in community. Coffee, dinner, Jesus. That's because you can't jump into the noumenal without spending some time in the phenomenal. Thirdly, learn to listen to their story. Empathize with it. Be interested in them. Fourthly, learn to tell your story as a story. And fifthly, ask if you can share something, share a story from the Bible. Don't open it up and read it in a really sallow, really serious tone. Just tell it. Hey, you remember, Jesus told this story. Can I share it with you? There's a couple of... Is that helpful? Okay, that's where to start. Why are we doing it? Because by his death, Jesus has opened up the door of salvation. It's standing wide and open this very day, waiting for your friends and family to walk into the very home of God. Isn't that what we want for them? And so be bold, Vine Church. Be inexplicably bold as you go out into the city because, you know, he's not shutting that door. He will change people's hearts if you have the courage to strike up the conversations. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ in whom the salvation of everyone in our world depends. And we ask that you would give us the courage to start at coffee, to move to dinner, and then to start talking about Jesus. Help us to be interested and to love those we come into contact with. And Father, we ask that you'd help us uh, to understand our own stories, what makes us tick, so that we'd be able to share what's happened to us in meaningful ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.